Welcome to Adversarial Learning. So we're finally uh, doing an episode again, uh, which is exciting. Um, thanks for listening. And here today we have a very special guest. We always have a special guest, but this one is extra special. And it is uh, Josh Wills. So if you're one of the people, you know, like me, who got into data science in the early days, like 2011, 2012, uh, Josh Wills was one of those names where, like, that's a data scientist I've heard of. Um, and, and so, you know, like, I couldn't. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head why I'd heard of him or like why he's like a famous data scientist, but he is one of those people, uh, you know, that you heard of. Um, so, Josh, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us why we, you know, would have heard of you? Why you've heard of me? You know, you've heard yeah. of me. Yeah. Uh, hey. So, yeah, I'm Josh. Uh, you heard of me back in the day. Uh, I think primarily because there was this big conversation in kind of early, like late 2011, early 2012 about like what a data scientist was. And this question of, of legitimacy of the title of like, like, why do we rename statisticians and all this kind of stuff? And so uh, in a fit of, of cleverness one day, um, I wrote a tweet, which was a definition of a data scientist, um, was someone who was better at statistics than any software engineer um, and better at statistics or better at software engineering than any statistician. Um, and that is a ripoff of a quote that some Algonquin group writer for the New York Times said back in that. I'm going to try to find it. He basically said he was he was better than anyone faster and faster than anyone better at writing. Um, I'm, gonna look, I'm like I'm googling his name right now because I want to give him proper attribution. Um, and I'm not finding Google is failing me, so I'm going to have to have a conversation. We'll just call him the Algonquin guy. The Algonquin group guy, right? That's a. So what were what were you doing when you came up with that pithy quote? Like, what, oh, what was so your... I was, um, yeah, so I was at Cloudera. I was working at Cloudera, and um, Jeff Hammerbacher had hired me to come be the director of data science. Um, so I was one of the people who like had this title, um, and he hired me because uh, he, I think, he was like kind of tired of going around and talking to people about data science and Hadoop and stuff like that. He was kind of interested in doing something else. Um, and he, so he hired me to take over that part of his job at Cloudera. He was one of the founders. Um, and so I took that on. How long did it take you to get tired of talking to people about data science and Hadoop? About two years, roughly speaking. I mean, it's, it, was, it, sort of, it was a really interesting lesson. Um, I, I took the job because, you know, Hillary Mason and DJ Patel, and, and there were all these people doing uh, interesting, you know, Drew Conway doing sort of interesting stuff around data science early on. And they all seemed kind of like famous for you know, analyzing data. And I was like, well, you know, I analyze data and like, I want to be, I want to be famous. So, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to hop on this train. Smart. No, it was, it was actually quite stupid. It was one of those like, be careful what you wish for, uh, kind of things in the sense that like, I learned that my, my nightmare in life would be to be like a rock star. Like if I had to get up on stage and play the same, like goddamn songs over, and over and over again. Like, I'm pretty sure that's like what hell is like for me. Like if I go to the bad place, that's what it'll be. It'll be going up and saying the same thing over and over again. So, you know, um, I think there's this, there's this line, um, you, you learn a lot, right? You learn a lot talking about the stuff. You learn a lot about having to explain things to people. Um, but after a while you just kind of, you develop like an aesthetic and a shtick and you just kind of get tired of listening to yourself, to be honest with you. Um, yeah. And it was just, it's just weird stuff where like, 
um, in, in certain situations, it's just anyone can say what you're saying. You know, you can write it down on paper and people can read it. You can record a video, but just for whatever reason, sometimes it has to be you being the person mm-hmm. to say the thing to get anyone to listen. Um, and so, yeah, it just gets to be kind of a drag after a while. And it wasn't, it stopped being fun. Um, and, and, you know, it's like I was flying 120,000 miles a year. Um, I, I started to get like, you know, the shakes, like driving down to SFO to get on the airport. Like it was a weird, I think for a couple of years, like SFO terminal two, which is the Virgin Virgin America terminal, like felt like home to me, like yeah, coming or going, you know what I mean? It was like, yeah. this is my, this yeah. is my home. Um, was that like diamond status for you or? Yeah, it was. I was, I was Gross. like one K global services, the whole, the whole nine. Yeah. You, yeah, okay. you, you get up there and it's, I mean, it's one of those things when like you're, you have no status and you're flying all the time. It's, it's a definite improvement, but like after, you know, my son was born and I started working at Slack and gave all that kind of stuff up. I was like, Oh, I, know, I don't miss it. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade to get it back again. It's not, it's not, it doesn't, I, I yeah, I don't miss it anyway. Yeah. What's it like yeah. working at Slack? Um, it's generally pretty nice. I'll be honest with you. It's, it's generally pretty nice. Um, it's, it's a little weird. I think the, the, you know, I've been doing, I've been here for three years now. I joined in October of 2015. Um, and the weird thing about working in Slack, at least in San Francisco is everywhere you go, everyone you talk to, you tell them you work at Slack and they're like, Oh, I love Slack. I love Slack so much. Not here. No, yeah. well, I'm glad to hear that. And I'm glad to be among people who, who, who hate, hate the product I work on, um, yeah, yeah. you know, working, working on this side of it, it's like, man, it's, it's terrible and it's, it's just really bad. And I feel do bad. You guys, do you guys use Microsoft teams internally? Or do you use- <laughs> no, no, we, we, we still use Slack internally. Yep. Um, yeah. What's yeah. the, yeah. What, I was going to ask, what's the world record for like the most slacks that one person has been a member of? Oh, that's a great question. I, you know, I yeah. probably used to know the answer to that. Um, it's, it's in the low thousands. I want to say I could, I could actually write a query right now and find out. <sighs> what the wow. I don't, I don't feel so bad about myself anymore. Like trying yeah, to keep up no. with that's, 10 that's or whatever. Lot, that's a lot of Slack. That's, that's quite a bit of Slack. I don't recommend. I think what, the funny thing about working here is like we use Slack for everything, like everything we, we use Slack way more than I think, uh, any normal company would consider like rational or healthy. For like um, HR issues and all that? HR issues, like, you know, if we're hiring someone, um, yeah. we create channels for their interview. We create channels for their offer. We create channels for like everything. We, we, we create, I mean, it's, it's sort of like the point of the product in some ways is like, it's, so at Cladera, Cladera was a hip chat shop, hip chat shop when I was there. Yeah. And, you know, um, you would kind of have like, you would have rooms in hip chat corresponding to teams or like, like this is the marketing room. This is the data science room. This is the engineering room. And if you wanted to talk to another team, you would go into their room and ask a question. Yeah. Whereas at, at Slack, it's much more of like it's channels, thousands of channels, you know, oh, 10 right. times as many channels as you have people. Yeah. Um, and there's channels for like every, it's sort of like, it's much more like, um, like I think of channels as almost like a physical space in some way, like a sort of combination of like space and time. Like in the way that like a meeting is a com- a meeting is like we're gonna meet like this thing right we're we're gonna meet in this time in this place so we're on ZenCaster at a certain time, and that's kind of like for me what a channel is. Um, every every sort of standing meeting should have a channel. Every sort of and this is like my perspective on using Slack. the 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 consequence of this though is that there is you know so much stuff in Slack that you are forced to ruthlessly and utterly prioritize mute everything. Yeah 
leave yep. everything. I have I have one starred channel, which is whatever I'm working on that day, like whatever feature thing I'm working on or whatever. And that's it. That is the only thing I pay attention to. Everything else is often muted or leave land. Someone, If someone needs me, they'll mention me, like that kind of thing. So this thing where people like obsessively you know, keep up with stuff. I just don't, I don't quite get that. I don't think that's healthy. It can't be productive. It just can't be. Certainly can't be. The other one that gets me that just sort of drives me crazy is the status signaling people do by doing like at here and at channel. You know what I mean? Uh Like in a lot of places, this is like a status thing that like you are important enough to be able to do this. Oh yeah. And I just like, I, Oh man, that just drives me crazy. Like if you did that here, like we would throw you out of the building. Like, (laughs) like you, you would be gone. Like no one, no one has that much status. I mean, like, you know, I think maybe like, you know, Cal or Stuart can do like that. And that's about it. Right. Um, You're about to notify 3000 people in 24 time zones. Yeah. Are you, and, are you sure you want to do that? Exactly. But I mean, like I said, a lot of places it becomes, it's like a Google, you know, Joel, you were there, like the being late to meetings was the status symbol. And so at all these places, like these, you, you get this sort of like shitty human behavior um, is a mark of status. And it just, oh, ooh, I hate it. Don't do not care for it at all. And I, and I feel bad in providing like a platform that enables it, especially since not for nothing on the back end, like actually getting those notifications out to the 3000 people you notified, not an easy problem, you know, yeah. not, not yeah. easy. Would much prefer not to do it anyway. What so if you had to like pay a huge penalty to, to use either at here or at channel? You really should. Like we should like cut off your finger or something. I don't know if that's. I was, uh, so yeah. in the, uh, there's this Puget Sound Python, which is like a local meetup group and they have a Slack, which is mm-hmm. pretty active. Okay. Um, and then one time, uh, some recruiter person joined the Slack, went into the jobs channel, uh, adhered some uh, job description, and then like everyone laid into this recruiter, like, right. uh, you know, how dare you, right? Um, and but but it was interesting because it suddenly got turned around of, of like, how were they supposed to know the culture of our Slack? Because we never said anything that you don't like. You know, there's no sign that says don't shit on my couch. So how was I supposed to know not to shit on your couch, right? Is um, it, and is that, is that really necessary that like there? I need to sign for that. That's I, that's a thing. I don't know. Um, but anyway, like the the, the yeah. people in that Slack really divided in two of mm. um, one. This is unacceptable. And you should have known this is unacceptable. Versus, wow, we were really unwelcoming to this person who shit on our couch. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think on balance I, I'm okay with that. I'm gonna have to live with being unwelcoming to the person shitting on my couch. I mean, it's fine to like take someone aside and be like, you know, it's, it's different if if it's like a coworker. I'm, I'm more concerned about who invited a recruiter into your into the Slack. How did how did they even get in the door in the first place? But that's oh well. It's, I mean, it's a it's a, it's a Python meetup group. Anyone okay. can join. It's an open. Okay, yeah, got it. So, I mean, I think it's like in, in that sense, it's like it's. Slack is it's great joy and it's uh, it's sort of like a I'll, I'll make an, another David Foster Wallace reference. It was kind of like we inadvertently created an enterprise software project or enterprise software tool that was so much fun to use that people use it for things besides enterprise software. When you know the reality is as we build it, like we're not really thinking about like cases like this because we're thinking that it's you know a company and if you did that at a company, it's like okay, you know Bob the intern, don't do that again. Like someone takes them aside and stuff like that, and it's okay. Um, and so there's a lot of, a lot of like fairly classic, you know, data science problems around spam and abuse and fraud that we don't generally have to deal with because of the target, you know, market we're going after. We don't have this, you know, we don't have a fake news detection problem and stuff like that. It's just not that kind of party. (laughs) Um, there, there are like bad communities and you need to shut down like people doing bad things, people doing bad stuff. 
but generally speaking, we don't we don't have this like abusive user kind of problem that a lot of other people do. What's the worst Slack? I don't know if I can say. I mean, like you know, beyond like the Emacs Slack, like I don't know. I mean, that's that's like sort oh. of personal opinion stuff. Yeah, that's right. I went there exactly. Okay. Half that's the fine. audience, half the audience just hang, like ends the podcast. Like, oh, are there that many Emacs users? I didn't know. I, I don't. I, I have no idea. But there's there are the Emacs people. I'm I'm a proud Vim person. I, I got no problem. I mean, that that's, I mean, how are they bad? I mean, are they mean or? Oh, I mean, there's nothing wrong with them. It's just people get, you know, religious about these, these stupid inconsequential differences. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's, I mean, you can say some people get kind of that way about how a channel is used, right? Okay. Some people get, get kind of, kind of nasty when you use general for the wrong thing. And, yeah. Uh, right. And so I think there's a tendency of, of you know, for people to get, just real, real pushy and uh, bossy when they when they see that they could like own some piece of the world or something. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I go back to sort of like Slack as a as a physical as a digital analog of physical space. It's kind of like in uh, you know um, what's this the the Stanley Kubrick movie with the gentleman you can't fight in here. This is the war room, like you know stuff like oh, that. Oh yeah, right. Like uh, Doctor Strangelove. Doctor yeah. Strangelove. Thank you. Right. I'm, yeah. I'm I'm old and can't remember things anymore. Oh sure. Um. But yeah, it's the same way that people get like territorial about their space. Um, you know, you have rooms that are basically like equivalent like to the water cooler, to the break room and stuff. And it's like, well, don't, yeah. you know, come in here and like steal someone's sandwich they left in the refrigerator and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, or don't erase my whiteboard in this room or I mean, whatever. People get very weirdly territorial about physical space. And I think people get weirdly territorial about digital space, too. It's just it's, yeah, you know, humans going to human, right? But so the recruiter who, who just jumped in and added yeah. everybody didn't didn't realize that she was doing that, but it was right. sort of like probably compounded by engineer types rolling their eyes about whatever recruiters do. Yeah, sure. No, and no, she, she 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 realized. I mean, she knew what she was doing. She knew enough to type "add here," right? I mean, if you, oh, if you yeah. type "add here," that is a pretty strong signal that you you know some slack. <laughs> it does. But but it may have she may have been from a culture where like if again if you have like ten people in the company and you're distributed then like maybe at here is a totally fine thing mm-hmm. to do and that's just how they roll. Yeah, um, you just yell hi, I'm I'm home in your house and you do. Okay. You, I mean, and that's that's yeah. exactly right. Um, yeah. So yeah, but it's 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 hard. It's like I don't know how do you teach you know like manners and stuff. I don't know in this in these kind just of environments yell, where there aren't yeah. physical cues, you know. Yell, yell at them and ostracize them. I mean, I, I remember once, I mean, it's, you know, it's like, it's on the, yeah, yell at them and ostracize them. I remember once being at a, my sister lives in St. Louis and I went to visit them once. My niece, I think was like three or four at the time. And we were in this giant, like really cool kind of German food beer hall thing that had these like high cement ceilings. And my niece like screamed at the top of her mm-hmm. lungs. And it just like the entire enormous restaurant just stopped and like looked at us. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, in the middle of it. And we're, you know, yeah. like they had the, you know, uh, horrible shame of like having to take her outside and stuff. Um, but it's the same kind of thing. She's, well, you know, she's three or four. She doesn't know any better. Sure. Anyway. Uh, sorry. I just, I just ramble. I don't know if this makes for good podcast material. It doesn't, but okay. we'll edit it. You'll edit it. Thank God. All right. I appreciate that. But the, what the big news, I think from, uh, your company was the uh, major logo redesign. I'm sure that was uh, really involved a lot of cycles at the company. Can you tell us a bit about that? You know, I, I, I honestly can't uh, just because I have like, 
I had I had nothing to do with it. I, I work on like very like back end systems kind of things. You know what I mean? Like I'm I, I my API is JSON. That's what like what that's what my logo looks like. Yeah. Um, Did you know people were really upset about it? I knew people were always upset about anytime you change anything. Um, yeah. So I knew people would be upset about it. I read we 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 obviously you know pay a lot of attention to these kinds of things and have read all the feedback internally and stuff like that. I try to go back and read, <laughs> I read, I read the feedback that Airbnb got when they created their new logo in order to kind of make myself feel better. Um, you know, oh, really? It's just, it, you're, you're changing stuff. People don't like change. I totally get that. I think it's, you know, the, the tricky thing I think with it is um, it's, it's like there was this, uh, some interview I read about some early Facebook people. And it's, this is like, I think very natural inside of a company um, that you, you know, you do things and sometimes people like them and sometimes they don't. And, you know, I got here back in like 2015, which was the era when like Slack was adorable and could like literally do no wrong. And, oh, Slack went down for a day. How, how cute, how adorable that was like back in the day. Um, and I think, so I mean, like there's certainly that phase of a company's life and you know, that's going to end and it, and it does and it should. Um, you don't want to like Facebook got to this phase, I think reasonably quickly in their life where like people told them that like everything they were doing was bad and it all kind of like worked out awesomely. Like there was that, the great uproar around the newsfeed, like when it was first created way back in the day, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, and then of course, face, whenever Facebook redesigns, like everyone's up in arms and they freak out about it for a couple of weeks. Why is that? Uh, I mean, people, people don't like change. I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, to be honest with you, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think we can get into a whole conversation about like the outrage mob and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, well, that'd be I was going to say the good thing about 2019 is that like, uh, <laughs> yeah, whatever you're mad about, people have forgotten about it in like a couple of hours, right? So like, I had totally forgotten about the, the Slack logo because that was like right. what, three days ago or something. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so I've, there've been yeah. like you know, 30 different hates since then. I mean, exactly. Who can remember the Slack logo? It's it's so true. It's it's exactly the case. I mean, the problem I think with that is that you become you know, uh, inoculated against it inside of companies and you stop paying attention. Um, cause you're just so used to the, yeah, like you're going to get the hate cycle for a couple of days and then it's going to move on to something else. And you just, you know, keep your head down and keep working on what you're working on. Um, and it's ultimately like bad for you. Like this is not a, a good state of affairs. So you get, you, you kind of like have to do it to stay sane. Like if you were living and dying on like what, you know, George in Louisville feels about your logo, like you, you can't get anything done. Um, but, uh, apologies, of course, we're going to get email from, from George. From George this, uh, that's okay. Well, it's, I mean, yeah. I rely on the fact that y'all have no listeners, so I don't really have to worry about that. Um, not in Louisville anyway. Yeah. <laughs> not anymore. Apparently not. We had, we had George. Had George and he's gone. Um, you, what do you, yeah. what do you, been, so it's a lot, you're talking about the, the evolution of, uh, the company from, you know, a nice little service coming up to where if, if, when Slack goes down, Twitter is 70% of, of, yeah, right. 70% of the work in America stops. Right. I mean, I had a, I had a moment where Slack was down for, you might remember it, uh, for a whole day. Yeah. And, and I, you know, being the busy beaver, I went and figured out a way to, um, just set up an IRC channel for the, for the, for the group I was in. And, and the, one of the guys on the team was like, what in the fuck are you doing? Enjoy your productivity. Um, <laughs> but I mean, do, do what, what is the, um, what what happens if you could give us a little snapshot of what happens when Slack is down? Is it just fire drills and flashing lights, or? Um, it's a great question. It's a great question. Um, yeah, I think first and foremost, the good news is that 
Slack going down doesn't really happen that much anymore. Um, I don't know. This is maybe the sort of thing that like people have not have noticed, but our uptime has actually been like astonish, like really, really good for the last five or six months as a result of a bunch of effort we've put in. Um, Congrats. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. It's been, it's been a lot of work and just a ton of, a ton of like, you know, again, infrastructure feature work that is not sexy. Um, it's not nearly as important as say, you know, dark mode and, and so on and so forth. Um, but is really, really important. So like just, much more graceful degradation of the service, like much more redundancy, much more fault tolerance, just all the things you need to do when you're not working on feature stuff. Um, so it doesn't really happen nearly as much anymore. I don't actually, I don't, the last really, really bad outage we had was September. And the last really, really like sort of multi-hour outage was June of last year. And I, I, I these dates are kind of burned in my mind because you're right, it is an absolute fire drill when it happens as it should be. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is deeply unpleasant um, so you have to go on Twitter and just like see all of, like, I mean, it's, in my feed is just horrible when these things happen. There's also a funny thing where I think for, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I'm, I, I might be, at least you don't work at Twitter. I mean, that's, I guess, the, well, I mean, imagine what those people have to hear about. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have a lot of, a lot of ex Twitter people here, so they're, they're also fairly used to it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it also well, when, how do you, how yeah. do you communicate internally uh, oh, during the fire drill? You use, I mean, you use like sure alternate chat methods i think it's it's evolved over the years i'm pretty sure it's hangouts right now but it's a big problem okay. because it's like i think yeah. it's the, a single hangout can't have more than 150 people in it um yeah. so we run into like the scaling limits of hangouts when we're like working on like bringing slack back up through other communication mechanisms and stuff like that yeah, yeah. so it's i don't know it's, it's a very educational experience you know and zoom very heavily i mean you basically just spin up a war room just as fast as you can get everyone in the room you know, you're, you're different groups handling comms, different groups handling the tech side of it. It's, you know, for, uh, for better or worse, it's something we've gotten very good at. Um, and I don't know, it's, 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 it's been much better lately. It's like just generally been really, really good. I think, you know, it's, it's this balance between again, back in the days when you're young and you're scrappy, um, it's cool that like someone can tweet a feature at you and you can like knock it out in a couple of hours and have it launched to the world in, you know, and you can reply to that person and be like, Hey, you know, cool idea done. Right. Enjoy. You know what I mean? And that's, that is a like absolutely awesome way to engender love from your users. When you're talking about teams that are like maybe 20 people tops, Um, when you're getting to like teams that are like hundreds of thousands of people, which, which we have a few of, um, it's just not an option. Like it's just not, it's not cute anymore. It's not adorable. Like the site has to be up. This stuff has to work. Um, and so it just changes the way you just have to change your way to work to adapt to that new reality. Um, takes a little bit of time, but it, you know, at the end of the day, it's just code. You write code or ideally delete code um, and, and things get better. Yeah. We're, uh, so I'm going to change the subject. Sure. Uh, were you one of the people uh, behind Wrangle Conf? I was. I was. That was that was my baby. Yeah. That and, uh, that was your baby. It was my. It was, it was something. I, Pete, Pete Scomrock and I talked about it for a while, and then we mentioned it to a guy at Cloudera named Justin Kestelin, who's over at, over at Google Google Cloud now, and he. I mean, he really made it happen. Um, I mean, he was the one who actually was like, you know, did the the hard work of like securing funding and getting a venue and all this kind of stuff. And we had event planning people at Cloudera. Um, who are just like absolutely wonderful. Um, but yeah, I think like content wise, the, the panel, the lineup, the structure, yes, I, I, I will take a fair amount of credit for that. Did that happen twice or more than that? Or I think it happened three times altogether. If I recall correctly, it happened once 
in my third year, like I'm trying to think of like Mike, I was a cloud era for four and a half years and doing wrangle was like one of my, I'm trying to remember if I had like left for Slack by then or not, but I did one wrangle at cloud era. And then I was either like about to leave or had left and did another wrangle. And then there was one more a year after that. Yeah. And so to, to what extent was this like, I want to put on a conference for all my friends, but like make it official. Uh, it was entirely, I want to put on a conference for all my friends, but make it official. That was just, that was the whole thing. Yeah. So, so why'd you, why'd you stop doing it? Oh, um, I, I don't think Slack is necessarily selling to data scientists. Um, I don't know why Cloudera stopped doing it, I guess is, is sort of the question. It was really a, a Cloudera shindig. Um, I see. So really, it really was Cloudera's conference, not your conference. It was, oh yeah, of course. I mean, exactly. I wanted to do it. I don't, I don't know. Like I, oh, yeah. I've thought about putting on a conference before, but and that would be yeah. No, putting on a conference it sounds like a lot of work. It is, in fact, a lot of work. Like it's it's good to have people <laughs> to like you know do all of the actual sort of like stuff for you. Um, in particular, if there's a woman um, named Felicia Haggerty um, who's oh, yeah. over at Tipco now, and she she was the one who like really really actually made it happen. Um, she was awesome. Yeah, she was she was the best. Um, and so I I would not ever want to do a conference without her. So maybe I'll go work at Tibco and, and start it back up again. Something idea. like that. Yeah, just be idea. able to do it again. It was, what, it was a lot of fun. I love Tibco. I actually I think they make like everything, right? Doesn't Well they don't they do Spotfire and they yeah, uh, they, they invented Spotfire. the language S That's right. and now they do R yeah. just to finish. They owe, they yeah. own like tons of stuff. I think they're one of those conglomerate yeah. companies, right? I'm gonna look them up yeah. on Wikipedia right now. I think they do like everything. It's Spotfire is a really, really big enterprise visualization tool. Yeah, it was for like Spotfire bio is like, companies, right? From what? For like bio, I remember it being popular in like bio science stuff. I've seen it. I've seen it all over okay. the place. There it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. They have a, they have their own Kafka distribution because why not? You know, they have like they look at all this stuff. Like, <laughs> Do they really? Like, I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm looking at their Wikipedia page. Okay. Look at all kinds of cool stuff. That is funny. They have they have a Kafka distribution and an enterprise message service. I'm not sure what the difference is. Anyway. Um, I went to one of the Wrangle confs. Uh, I don't know which one. Okay. I think that might be the only time we ever met. Actually. Okay, but uh, I think it was the last one. I think, it, I think it, we got in the, at the tail end, back after after. Uh, it, was the one, it was the one where I got a, a a glass boot as a souvenir. That was that because been it's, all of them. Uh, sitting in my bathroom with flowers. Yeah, in that it. would have been all of them. Yeah, we that was always a souvenir. Okay. Yeah, well, it's nice. I'm glad you liked it. No, I, I said I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, I found it was a fun environment too. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was. It was a it was a good group of people. We got a good crew together, and it was I you know was um, a careful curator of like the talks, and would require people to submit their talks ahead of time so that I could fix them before they went on. And that was all these things. That's not a lot of work. No, it is. But I'm I'm very I hate I hate boring conferences. You know, especially like at that point after doing it for four years, I was like a connoisseur of this stuff. Um, and so I had very strong opinions about like content and stuff like that. In fact, the only, I remember the first wrangle, the only talk I did not like was the only one where it was basically like a sponsor and I just had to let the guy speak and I couldn't edit it. And I was like, Oh, I was so annoyed. But anyway, I'm, I'm definitely not a control freak in any way. Like, like no, no, it doesn't like sound like other it. data people. I had no issues with that. So, yeah. Right. So, so, so I saw you're speaking at a uh, QCon in a couple I am. months. I am. On one of my, is that, is yeah. that, it turns out I'm, I'm going to be speaking there too, cool. so I'll let's, see you there. Let's hang out. That'll be good. I'm talking about one of my favorite topics, which is which is monitoring uh, from pro, like production machine learning systems, um, which is one of those horribly unsexy things that I think is cool. And so I like to challenge myself into like, how do I make this horribly unsexy, boring thing cool enough to get people to care about it? Um, What's QCon about? 
Uh, it's QCon.ai this time. QCon is, is a really great conference um, series. Like QCon does a bunch of different stuff. I've spoken there a couple of times. It's one of my favorites um, because they take like speaker quality and feedback very seriously. So um, less seriously this year, apparently. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, because <laughs> you and I are there. Um, but I, I think even in the, like they will send you like prep materials. And then after you speak, they, they ask everybody leaving, like everyone leaving gets like a little token. They get like a red or green kind of token they can give out and they collect them on the way as people leave. Yeah. So just to like get you excited about this conference and they, they like, they will send you like the breakdown of like green and red percentages on your talks. And if you get too much red, they, cool. your ass is not coming back. Can I, can I, I can swear, right. right? That's not a problem. We've been okay, swearing. Have we? Uh, yeah. You, did, you just didn't I, I notice. Just didn't notice. Okay, fine. Um, Joel, what's yeah. your talking to me about? I, I I don't know. Now I now I feel the pressure though. Um, I think they want me to talk about uh, natural language processing, so I'm probably going to talk about natural language processing. But uh, uh, that means I have to figure some stuff out about natural language processing. Um, no. So like, uh, I think what I'll probably suggest to them is um, basically. What does modern natural language processing look like in terms of what are the tasks that researchers think about? What are the models that they apply? What are the techniques? What are the concepts? And, and all okay. that stuff. Cool. Um, so I, that's, can I can I can I ask I you know. can I ask you a question about natural language processing? Is that is that the way this? You works? certainly may. Okay. What do you what is your take on this Bert stuff that the that the Goog has released recently? Um, it's awesome. is it really? It, it looks it looks quite awesome. I was wondering if it was in fact as awesome. Is it the what is it? People, is it the ImageNet moment? What was the line people were saying? Uh, so, so um, it's been incremental, mm -hmm. right? So, BERT is the evolution of uh, kind of a lot of people have been trying to train these like giant unsupervised. They call them unsupervised language models. I don't, in my mind, they're not okay. unsupervised because they're supervised. Yeah. But um, <laughs> that, that's a that's a point of argument. But anyway, they call them unsupervised language models, um, and. So, you know, uh, before BERT at AI2, we came out with this model, uh, one of my colleagues did, uh, called ELMO. And at OpenAI, they came out with this transformer language mm -hmm. model. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, Jeremy Howard and, and I think Sebastian Ruder came out with this ULM okay. fit. So, so there, people have been pushing in this direction over the last couple of years over, can we just train this giant unsupervised language model, um, you know, just by shoving tons and tons of text through it? Um, and get a trained model that can then, you know, give us much smarter word vectors than just like glove or word yeah, yeah. or whatever, right? So, uh, so, so, so Elmo and, you know, some of these other OpenAI ones were basically saying, instead of saying that, you know, king gets this vector and queen gets this vector, instead we're going to give king a vector based on how it appears okay. in the sentence. Um, so if you say, uh, you know... Um, I captured his king versus he's the king of England. Those two kings would get very different embeddings. Um, and so that was kind of, you know, the first step. And then um, a lot of these things use these uh, recurrent net networks, which are mm -hmm. in the Astro train. And so uh, what Bert did is they just built this giant, giant model um, using transformers. And, and they said, basically, this model is so big that, if you're not us, you have no hope of ever training it yourself. <laughs> That's honest. Um, yeah. Which, which, which is a, you know, if you can pull that off, totally. like more power to you, right? Because then you've got, uh, that, yeah, that's a good exactly. mode. Um, and so basically, they did the unsupervised language model. They also um, put in, like, a, another big thing in NLP is this concept of multitask training, where if I, like, basically take a model that 
I can stick like different output layers mm -hmm. on it and have it do different things um, and train it with several different mm -hmm. objective functions. Mm -hmm. It does better at all of them. It's like a form of regularization. So with BERT, they're doing um, one thing that they're doing, um, I think, and I might be speaking on my ass a little bit here, um, is that one of their tasks is given a sentence, I'm going to mask some of the words at random. And can I predict what the masked words are? And then there's another task that's given two sentences. Um, is it plausible that these two sentences actually appear in sequence in some document, mm, or is okay. it not plausible? Um, and so these are two different tasks that they were training it on. Um, and what they got was this model um, that, and so there's this benchmark uh, called the GLUE benchmark, which is basically a, a conglomeration of all these different NLP tasks. Um, and Bert just like blew everyone out of the water on all these benchmarks, like okay. in an amazing okay. way. So yep. it was really impressive. And so Bert is really impressive. Yeah. That said, catch. Um, what's the catch? What's the catch? There is always a catch. Um, the catch is that there's one task in um, the the glue um, that Bert hmm. cannot what do. Is it? Um, and it, but no oh, one can okay. do it, basically. Um, and, and so its score on that is basically, uh, for that, it predicts the majority okay. class. Yeah, okay. uh, but, but anyway, so the, this task um, is basically what's called a, 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 a Winograd schema, which I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Um, but but basically the idea is so so take uh, consider the consider the two sentences the city councilman refused the demonstrators a permit because they feared violence and the city councilman refused the demonstrators a permit because they uh, advocated sure. violence. Okay. Um, so so in one of those sentences the they refers to the city councilman and one of them the they refers yeah. to yeah. the demonstrators right and and so ambiguating or disambiguating mm. between those two is uh, turns out it's really hard okay. from an NLP perspective. And so that's the thing that uh, uh, Bert, as I understand isn't it, that is not humans, good at though? Like, no isn't that, good Aren't at humans it. bad at that? And like, this isn't like sort of what good writing is about is making it easy for people's brains and obviously their machine learning algorithms to process writing? Yeah, you'd have um, to ask, what do you mean? On a no, I, 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 don't, I don't think that's hard. I mean, if you say, because... They feared violence. Like I think most people would say, okay, that's the city councilman. And if you say because they advocated violence, most people yeah, exactly. There's sort of, a, but, so. but I see what you're saying. It's sort of like it's almost a cultural convention in some ways when we're talking about like these dangling modifiers and stuff, or you know, right? Like like fundamentally, like the semantic meaning of the word becomes like really, really important for disambiguation in a way where like just the structure of the sentence is not useful or not not helping, not not doing the work. Exactly, yeah. and so and. To, and, and so that's kind of where uh, where these things uh, are okay. still not doing great. But so nothing, but it, nothing works well on that. As f so, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Here's the thing. I'm like, uh, whenever I talk about NLP, I'm always like talking a little oh, bit sure. above my head. Whenever I'm talking, um, that's the same. It's so, fine. yeah. So, so I don't. Um, but as far as I know, um, th those problems okay. are still considered very hard. I think it's like I, I have this thesis that like it feels like these days. The, the major constraint on what we can do with machine learning kind of comes down to like, is the information, is the data I need for training this model in a digital form or not? And if it is, then great with a sufficient amount of com computational power and blah, 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 I will be able to build a machine learning model that can do it. And if it's not, if no one has like structured this information or digitized it in any way, then I'm basically SOL and there's nothing I can do. And I think, 
I 100% disagree with you. Tell me, why, why am I wrong? I love to be wrong. Okay. So here, here is my, um, and this is, this is frivolous, okay. but this is like my canonical mental um, why AI okay. is hard. Okay? Um, so here's, here's the problem. I'm going to give you seven okay. Harry Potter books. Okay? Yep. And those are the canon. Um, and now I'm going to give you uh, a piece of fan fiction, which I okay. downloaded from the internet, right? And I want you to tell me what are the things in the fan fiction that are in contradiction with canon. What are like the facts in the in the? Okay. For instance, so like maybe maybe the fan fiction says Ron Weasley okay. has blonde hair, mm-hmm. or maybe okay. it's much more subtle than that. Maybe it says you know Harry Potter was born, uh, you know whatever, in, okay. or, whatever. But or um, Snape, Snape's case. That's not a, sure. Got it. Okay. All right. Right. So, so I'm not saying that's an easy problem to do, but I'm saying that like, mm-hmm. if you wrote fan fiction and put it on fanfiction.net and you got one of those things wrong, some jerk on the internet would, would pop up and say, listen, dude, go to Chamber of Secrets, page 263, paragraph 5, and it clearly okay. says that you are wrong, right? Um, so could you get a computer to do that with enough data? I, say I yes. don't see how. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to brave yes. I'll, I will pitch to you how I would do this. And it will, it will be hand-wavy. It will be hand-wavy. Um, not saying it would be possible now, but I, I would argue that the problem to solve is like fact extraction from texts. And given enough text and given enough sort of like accurately labeled training data about the text, about like what, what sort of factual relationships existed in the text, I'm going to claim that you could train a BERT model or something else that would say, okay, here's a bunch of text pick out all of the like fact things from this text and then train that on or like run that through the Harry Potter books and then run that through the fan fiction and then like go through and like identify the differences. Could you do it perfectly? No, probably not. But I, I think you could do it. I think it is doable. How would you even represent a fact in this scenario? Well, there's the whole, um, there's the whole like record linkage um, thing here, right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, again, much like you, except even more egregiously, I'm going to be talking out of my ass. Um, but there's this stuff like Chris Ree works on at Stanford on, uh, again, I am like Googling, like Apple acquired their company. It was Mike, it was Mike Caffarella, who y'all might know is one of the early Hadoop people. Um, and Chris, they got acquired by Apple. They did a company, I think it was called Deep Dive. Yeah, Deep Dive. That's what it is. And it works on this problem called, what is it? Deep Dive is a system to extract value from dark data, blah, 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 blah. It was like entity, it was like entity extraction on steroids, something like that. Yeah. I'm trying to think like what the problem, there's an area, it's like, I think it's like called knowledge-based construction, I, I think is the area of academic research <laughs> that these, these yep, folks are I, I know, on. I know a fair amount about it. You're familiar, oh, so you know this stuff much better than I do. I'm so like, um, uh, I'm, I'm claiming. Yeah, so like one of one of the yeah. one of the projects we work on at AI too is called Aristo, and it's about um, basically building an AI to answer science questions. And yeah, and one area of research in line with that is can we do kind of uh, extract knowledge bases from either unstructured text or yeah, you know, DVPP or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I, I think we can do it. I don't know. I, I'm I'm going to claim again, given enough compute power, blah blah blah. I don't feel like we're that far off from being able to do it. That's me. Again, knowing nothing. Yeah. Anyway. But what's the task exactly is to figure out whether this fan fiction has something wrong. And if JK Rowling wrote a book with, you know, with 
a blonde Ron Weasley well, to pull that is, out? Or in in knowledge-based construction, it's, it's about like find all the entities and find relationships between them. I think the canonical example I saw in Deep Dive was like figure out that Barack Obama and Michelle Obama are two people and are married versus figuring out that like Malia is their daughter, like, like this kind of stuff. This is all the sort of factual relationship stuff people would try to deduce from, from text. This is a fun conversation, by the way, I'm enjoying this. I don't really get to talk about this stuff that much. Um, yeah. And, anyway. and, so, and so what I, what I'm maintaining is that like, it's not a question of compute power. The, the, the theory is not there. Um, and the techniques okay. are not there. Okay. All right. But that's not the only thing that's hard. About it, AI. No, it's, that's definitely not the only thing that's hard about AI, but that's like, that's one of, that's kind of, and, um, it's a little bit frivolous of me, but that's like my mental touchstone of what is a really hard NLP problem that I don't feel like we're even in the ballpark of being able to attack. Got it. I wonder, I guess I wonder as more jobs become, I, I guess, Joel, I mean, are, are we on the, we believe that, you know, it's like things I wonder about. Everyone keeps talking about how radiologists are, are screwed, right? Like AI is going to replace radiologists. How do the, how do the radiologists feel about this? Are they going to like, you know, go around and like beat up self-driving cars? Are they going to like, are they going to be like the Luddites? Like what are the radiologists going to like sit back and wait to be replaced? Like what, what, like what happens? But here's, but here's why that's, here's why yeah. that's bullshit. I mean, that's what, 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 what's going to happen is the job of radiologist is not going to be to find every possible anomaly. It's going to be able to develop different things to look at. I mean, so it's sort of like, it's like saying that a vacuum cleaner just mm. ruined housework. You know, I mean, it's like you're not going to put yeah. radiologists out of jobs. You're going to free uh, them up. Possibly. To do I mean, maybe, maybe not. I don't I'm, know. I'm not sure. But if the question is how do radiologists feel about it? Well, I don't know any radiologists. Yeah. But, um, but um, and I think I've told this story on the podcast before, but I'll tell it again. Um, yeah, I have a okay. friend from college who's a, he's a biostatistician. Um, okay. And whenever, uh, and we're, so we're Facebook friends, we're college mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. um, and whenever he posts something, um, about data science. He has a lot of academic statistician friends and you should see um, incredibly how catty these, you know, biostatisticians and statisticians get <laughs> um, about the idea that people who aren't statisticians might be doing statistics and getting paid a lot of money for it. And mm. um, so uh, they're not, that's they're not my, thrilled. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's my, that's my, that's my touchstone for, um, for how they'll react. And along those lines, um, I guess this, we haven't recorded an episode in like years, but I certainly haven't told this story. Um, so in a few months, the, uh, the American Statistical Association is putting on a symposium on statistics and data science. Um, and, okay. and so I think that's mostly academics, but I'm not 100% sure. Maybe it's not. It could be some interesting people. But anyway, they invited me to come give uh, the, the banquet keynote. Um, cool. And it's supposed to be like funny. So like... Uh, yeah. Yeah, like a thirty to fifty minute stand up routine about statistics and data science. Yep. in front of a crowd of maybe academics, statisticians who don't know how they feel about data science. So, so you I think, wear, I like, think you have gonna... to wear a funny hat or anything, or is it just can you dress normally? No, that, 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 that's your thing. Okay, um, got it. <laughs> no, no, I... <laughs> it is very much my thing. I assure you. No, I wear a. Yeah, um, it's both, they said thirty to fifty minutes. So I haven't started writing it yet, but that's a long Ooh. set. Yep. I found a I, I found an open mic uh, up near me. Uh, on Monday nights, and so I keep saying I'm going to go there and start, you know, workshopping some of my material. It's not the worst idea. Yeah. Yeah. If 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 a uh, if a crowd of like drunk people in Everett, Washington, you know, likes my data science jokes, then probably they'll play really well. But, exactly. Uh, 
That's a good sign. That's a good yeah. sign. Yeah. That's funny. That's funny. I can see that. I guess, I don't know. I, I think about, you hear this stuff. We talk about this stuff, the assumption that professions are going, like certain professions are just going to go away. And um, I can't help but wonder, like, I just, the, the assumption that people will just passively take this just makes like no sense to me. Like, I just, I just don't see that happening. Um, well, like, I mean, radiologists have MDs, so in theory they could do other things, right? I think so. I think so. I, again, as I understand it, but I, it's more of like, I don't know anything about radiology. There's a great, like, like one of my favorite machine learning papers is, is called Outside the Closed World. Have y'all ever read this one? No. It's a really good no. one. Um, so it's called, yeah, Outside the Closed World. It's about using machine learning for network security detection stuff. And it is like basic for network intrusion detection. Yep. It's kind of like there was this era Y'all may not remember this. I think it was like, they wrote this like back in the nineties, I think where everyone was doing like K-means cluster. This is 2010, not that long ago. There was this era where everyone was doing like K-means clustering for network intrusion events on top of some data set that some people put out there. And it was kind of like the standard PhD dissertation. Um, and these network security researchers came along and basically said that this is all nonsense. It's, it's not possible. And basically in order to build successfully build machine learning models, to solve network intrusion detection problems, you would need to become effectively an expert on network intrusion detection, more or less. Um, and it was an argument made from a position, which I think was accurate, which was that back in the day, we had to do engineer these features by hand and engineering the features by hand pretty much would make you a network security expert, more or less. Um, and now as we enter a world where for at least some things, you know, vision, NLP, whatever, we don't really have to engineer the features by hand anymore. The computer can do that for us. Um, I wonder, I wonder the extent to which this is still true. I don't know. Well, that, that's the question that always comes up with, um, with data science and machine learning is how can you do this if you don't have business domain expertise? Right. You, should go, you should go ask the old school, uh, linguistics people, how they feel about, you know, computational NLP. Have they, I mean, aren't they still like kind of talking like, you know, like Chomsky grammars and stuff like that? Like, are they, I don't like what, 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 what world do those people live in nowadays? I don't really know. Um, so I can't say I really know either, but I know that yeah. like there, there's a big push from some of them, like these, you know, ML people getting into NLP, you know, like, like me, for instance, um, you know, how dare they not know any actual linguistics? Yeah. Uh, which I yeah. mostly don't. Right. Um, yeah, sure. Of course. I mean, are they wrong? I mean, do you do you do you feel bad about your lack of linguistics knowledge, or you, do you ever read anything in linguistics and you're like, "Wow, this is awesome"? Yeah, I mean, or or do you feel like you'd be a better better at your um, job? So, so honestly, because I'm not really trained in NLP either, it's hard for me to know when there's a concept I don't know if it's like a linguistics concept I don't know or like a computational NLP concept I don't know. Yeah. So, um, you know, like there's a ton of stuff that I would be better at my job if I knew, but there's only, there's only so, so many hours in the day, day to learn it. that kind of stuff. I remember, like in grad school, once being at a, like a thing where someone from the CS department, machine learning person, was coming and giving a talk to the statisticians, and it was largely like the whole talk was basically just like the statisticians like dunking on this guy, like as he's giving his talk, like he'd like label, just say something and describe it, and the statisticians would be like, "Oh, that's that's the jackknife. We invented that in like 1973. Like, what 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 else you got? <laughs> like like this kind of stuff, right?" Um, and as someone, you know, who enjoys a good dunking as much as the next man, uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this, but I, I reflect on it. And I don't know. I feel bad. It's, it's hard. Like, you know, when someone comes in in this sort of like very adversarial way, uh, 
they're not actually interested in like hearing what you have to say or understanding if there's anything novel or if there's anything different about what you're saying. They're just interested in like sticking it in the box and then moving on. Um, right. It's like the, it's like the meme about you, you invented. Yeah, exactly. Right. The, yeah, precisely. Uh, you yeah. reinvented. Like, yeah, but I was right, thinking about right, it differently. Precisely. Never mind. Exactly. So it, yeah, precisely. Sorry for trying anyway. to help. So, so do we think that the domain expertise circle of the Venn diagram no longer uh, has a place? That's a, that's a great question. It was that. Oh, was that in there? I think it was actually, wasn't it? Right. Yes. It's, it's there. Uh, math yeah, and stats, sure, hacking man. skills, domain expertise. Substantive, substantive expertise in Where's the original. Dangerous. Substantive expertise. Substantive ex- but, it. but effectively, yeah. But effectively domain expertise. That's what Drew meant, right? Yeah. Um, man, I, that's a, I mean, I think that maybe that is the question and that's a great question. Um, it feels like, I mean, the hard thing, right. Is when in the case of computer vision, when for years people are doing machine learning and the computer vision, people are like, y'all have no idea what you're doing. And then lo and behold, <laughs> hi there, my name's Jan. Look at my model. It's like, you know, X percent better than anything you all have ever come up with. Like, what do you say? <laughs> What's, what is your, what is your response? Machine computer vision person. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe your substance expertise is not actually that important. Sorry about that. Um, so anyway, so some of, some of sure. it's gatekeeping exactly. for no reason, or just to preserve the ownership of the domain. And yes. some of it may be constructive. Like, no, actually you're looking at the, you're, you're looking at uh, yeah. uh, debts, not sure. receivables. So right, exactly. sorry, we, we have it in red. I remember I once once had an intern like looking at some data about uh, kind of analyzing like uh, crime and like sort of construction permits in the city of Chicago. City of Chicago opened up a bunch of data. He was analyzing. He found this correlation between you know violent crime and the construction permit rate in various zip codes. And you know what it is? It's it's just weather. It's just it's just weather. People build stuff during the summer and and they and they kill each other during the summer. They don't really do it so much during the winter. It's just like confounding variable um and you know if you don't know that then easy easy to get confused like easy to get confused by the confounding variable um yeah yeah but i would say that even if you do know that it's easy to i could not could not agree more as a yeah i delude myself on a regular basis that's i don't think that's i don't think anyone has a hard time believing that um but yeah when i'm when i'm deluding myself when i'm holding like you know the data and the confidence intervals it's like in that way it's just sort of much more dangerous i think Anywho. Yeah, exactly. Like so I'm feeling, extra, I'm feeling extra confidently delusional, um, which is not not awesome. Yeah. Anyway, uh, decisions, decisions. What else? What else? What else we got? Well, well, what about? Uh, I mean, yeah. just to, as a throwback, what what's uh, any news with Apache Crunch these days? Um, I don't really, you know, actually I just got a PR today or PR yesterday. I'm actually kind of excited about to fix. Cool. What's up? What's Apache crunch? Oh, sorry. Apache crunch, um, is an open source project I founded many, many years ago during my cloud era days. It was one of the, one of the first things I did there. Um, and it was <laughs> a pretty straight ripoff of a technology I used at Google, uh, called flume Java, which is a library they had written for constructing, like data pipelines in a fairly high level language. And then Flume Java would kind of compile them down to MapReduce jobs for you. And it was much nicer to use. Yep, I, I, I wrote a lot of Flume C++ back in the day. Yeah, sure. Right. Lucky, lucky you there. Um, so anyway, uh, that is now, you know, it's now actually been open sourced and is uh, at least it's, it's, it's Apache Beam is now like kind of the, the child, the grandchild, I think of Flume Java at this point. 
um, and has the Google Cloud data flow stuff that goes with it. I'm, I'm assuming Google Cloud is sponsoring this podcast and I get paid every time I mention yep. it. Um, yep, of course. Fingers crossed on that one. So yeah, but anyway, Flume Java was like my, my or sorry, Crunch was my ripoff of, of Flume Java because I used it at Google and I liked it and I thought it was cool. And so I, I kind of like reverse engineered it from like having used it. How does this thing probably work? Oh, it was one of yeah, it was one of the fun like one of the more fun experiences of my life. It was like I, I it took me like three attempts to do it. Like the first time I tried it and I kind of coded myself into a cul-de-sac. And then the second time I tried it, I like just way over-engineered it, you know? Like it was just way there's like factories and singleton beans and all that kind of Factory garbage. factories. Yeah, yeah, just Java garbage everywhere. And I was like, yeah, I'm not actually <laughs> not actually writing any code. I'm just like defining classes. Um and the third time I kind of just managed to make it like basically work. Um, and so, and then open sourced it. <laughs> Don't touch it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and yeah. It's, it's still used. And in fact, it's used pretty heavily. It's, it's Slack because it powers um, our offline search indexing pipeline. So it builds, oh, it builds the Slack search index, obviously unbiased technology choice there. Oh, right? Of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Kind of things, exactly. you, did, you did a comparative matrix, I'm sure. Yeah, precisely. Like really thought it through yeah. that kind of stuff. It was a matrix, a one by one matrix. Yeah. So anyway, it's a, an, an engineer who I'm pretty sure is, is at Cerner Corporation um, sent me a patch today that fixes the S3 integration with Crunch, which has always been really janky in the same way that Hive's S3 integration was really janky. Um, and so he, he's fixed it. I'm super excited to review it. Um, awesome. You know, broadly speaking, as as Spark has gotten like kind of less terrible over time, um, we use Spark for more and more things. You know, like the kind of outer limits of like these. I mean, building like Slack search index is like a you know hundreds of terabytes of data kind of problem. Um, I don't quite trust Spark for that kind of stuff just yet, but I will someday. You know, it'll get there. It'll get there. They'll they'll make it good. I'm sure. Do you do you use Apache yeah. Spark or Databricks Spark? Uh, we use Apache Spark. We we yeah we we're in a sort of hardcore AWS shop over here, yeah. um, and like so yeah. Do we use we use EMR for all the things. We're big fans of uh, EMR Distro, Spark. Hive, we're sponsored Pesto. by Amazon too. So oh, you're, so you're gonna get even even better. Out. Exactly right. Precisely. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this. Yeah. Um, I am right now putting the finishing touches on the second edition of Data Science from Scratch. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's um, awesome. That's great news, man. That's wonderful. It is wonderful because, like, my number one, like, overriding reason for doing it, yeah. I didn't really want to write a second edition. Yeah. But, like, I feel so bad about myself that there's a Python 2 book out there with my name on it that, like, I had to do something. Yeah, okay. I, just, I, I just felt, yeah. okay. But one of the things that, that I, I wrestled with in, in terms of, like, actual changes to the book was, should I leave the MapReduce chapter in or is MapReduce over and I should just get rid of that chapter? Yeah, that's a great question. Um so I think, I mean, the sad fate of technologies is to become so reliable and good as to become like invisible and taken for granted, right? That's, that's what, that's what success looks like. Um, and that's more or less what's happened in MapReduce, right? It's just staggeringly effective at what it does and therefore not that interesting anymore. Um, Spark has done had a much longer sort of shelf life at being like kind of bad at stuff, and that that keeps it interesting. Definitely keeps it adventurous. Um, but you know it, it'll it'll happen to Spark too, right? At, at some point, it just becomes just too good and too reliable. I mean, I guess my TLDR is so. is yeah. I mean, I feel bad. It's there's nothing wrong with like I think there's nothing wrong with like understanding the concepts of MapReduce and like understanding kind of broadly how this stuff works. In the same way, there's nothing wrong with like understanding how like a linked list 
or a, you know, B tree is implemented, but like, you don't want to actually do that stuff yourself or like care about it at all. Right. Um, so yeah, I, th I think in that sense, uh, you know, conceptually speaking, like spark and MapReduce share the same set of primitives, right? Like the same kind of primitive foundation. Um, and so like, yeah, conceptually there's nothing wrong with keeping it in, but like from a technology perspective, I don't know that it's worth highlighting, but, it, but it's kind of like, how else would you like explain the paradigm? Like, it's not like spark is the paradigm, right? It's, it's a different implementation of the same underlying sort of map reduce pattern. And it feels like map reduce should at least get kind of primacy there just based on the paper. You know, I don't know. It's a good question. I, 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 I did leave it in. Okay. Like that was the one topic in the book yeah. where I was like, I don't know if this is important anymore. Yeah. It's a good legacy topic to keep. It in. is. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's sort of so it's foundational. It is. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's like even, even in Sparkland, it's worthwhile, I think to learn. I don't know. I, I, I guess like for me, like one of the, the great joys of, I, I, I don't know. I am a weird person and I, I don't feel like that would be tough to sell to this audience. Um, that like I really really like data pipelines a lot, um, yeah, and too. I really really like writing them, and I really like knowing in excruciating detail how these things work. And like when I'm writing the Spark job or like the Hive query or whatever, to know I know what's happening, right? I know what this does, and I you know I know how it works, and I know that because I uh, have written like this kind of framework myself. Um. And I don't know, I like, I like having that skill at my disposal. Um, most people like rightfully don't care. I, I, I don't blame them. They're right. Yeah, but most people would be at 10 hours in just wondering why it's not done yet. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's also true. That's also true. And I, I am not in that boat um, from having, having done it far too much. The yeah, good news is that, you know, like the, like the, the key to success, it's like that thing about Craig Newmark, you know, the founder of Craigslist, um, being like somewhere on like the autism spectrum and just being really, really good at customer support, right? And his title is chief customer support representative because like the way he made Craigslist succeed was to just mindlessly answer e customer support emails from people for hours, like without ever whatever, right? It's and uh, so for me, like data pipelines is that kind of thing. And I am fortunate that a lot of people find it excruciatingly boring and are more than happy to pay me to fix it for them. Um, cause I, I get to stay employed as long as that is the case. So, uh, cool. Anyway. Well, they're never going to be, it's not, not going to be a solved problem anytime soon. So I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm not sure about that. I, I, I kind of can't help but wonder that like, you know, there'll be some transformer based convolutional neural network for data pipelines and I'll, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be radiologisted or something and I'll, and knowing yeah, given yeah. It's me, I'll probably just like take it. I won't even like fight back. I'll just be like, yep, this is better. I'm done. Yeah, there's always going to be a data scientist who insists that their pipeline has to run on Jupyter notebooks, and an engineering manager who's too spineless to say not to not to say no to them. And then uh, someone's going to have to like build, yeah. you know, that monstrosity like they did in Netflix. I, so. I mean, I know it, and Joel, I, I love your I love your I hate notebooks talk just so much. I just if, if just the opportunity to, you know, I'm not going to compliment you in any other way during this thing, but that was just that was inspired. It was so good. It was it was one of those things where, um, uh, like, it surprised me. I figured I was going to go to the conference, like, give the talk. People would be angry at me uh, who had who were in the audience, and then that would be the end of yeah. it. Yeah, but like, it was a real it, game changer, uh, wasn't it, for you and your? It, so here's the thing, like, um, uh, like that was six months ago. If you go to those slides today, yeah. like at any point in time, there's probably like thirty or forty people looking at them. Yeah, 
<laughs> Google, Google slides tell you how many people are looking at them. Like, who are these 30 or 40 people that are like looking at my slides like right now? Um, but the other thing is that, uh, so next week is uh, Triple AI, which is this big uh, academic AI conference okay. in Hawaii. Cool. Um, and, so they're have, and so they're having a workshop on uh, reproducibility. Yeah, um, big topic. And, and so like yeah. I have uh, you know, I have coworkers who are going to this because they've like published academic papers that are you know getting presented at the conference and so on. Um, and so the guy running this workshop emailed me. He's like, do you want to come to our, you know, academic AI workshop on reprodu- reproducibility and talk about notebooks? Wow. That's awesome. Are you doing it? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to Hawaii. Is, is, it, in, is it in Oahu or is it on Maui or where is it? Yeah, it's, it, no, it's in, it's Waikiki. Yeah, it's Waikiki. Okay. That's kind of annoying. I, I, I would, I would respond and be like, if you guys do it on the big island, I'm there. Otherwise, that's right. no, no, she has to be. Exactly. That's me. And I mean, I think, Jill, yeah. you know, to your point, and y'all asked me earlier, earlier here about like the, you know, my, my years of, of doing talks and like, I am like, I feel like doing that job, being director of data science at Cloudera, doing DevRel, doing talks, doing evangelism is kind of like the best job in the world to have had. Like actually having the job is terrible, but I am incredibly grateful that I had it because I have this like legacy dividend of like material and blog posts and videos that like people use to find me and think of me as a expert person on things like forever. It's probably, probably why you guys are talking to me right now for that matter. Right. Um, and so it's, it's kind of like, I mean, it's kind of like writing a book. It's like writing, I mean, you know, Joel data science from scratch did great. I imagine you made more money from it than like we made from advanced analytics with spark. Um, but like Wes made, of course, like Python for data analysis, right. Did phenomenally well. Um, but it's like writing a book is the worst. Writing the second edition is, in some ways, even more terrible. Um, and it's, it's not like it's not that much money in the grand scheme of things. But I'm like grateful that I did it, and I have this like artifact. You know what I mean? That pays pays dividends for me forever. Anyway, my thing with talks is that I like giving talks. I like it a lot, actually. Um, and part of that is that you know there's an alternative universe in which I was a stand-up comic instead of a, a data yeah. slash yeah. person, right? And, and so giving giving talks is like the main outlet I have for that side of my personality. Gotcha. Um, but the thing is, I don't like traveling and I don't enjoy being at conferences that much either. Right. Um, and I don't like repeating myself the same way that you don't like repeating yourself. Yeah. So my ideal is to give like a small number totally. of totally. You know, fairly prominent talks a year, yep. but to have it be such a small number that it's never the same talk twice. Yeah, I, I could not. I could not agree more with you. I, I have a little bit. Of, so I have a bit of that too. And the one thing that I guess bugs me about it, and I'm going to try to fix this year, um, is I, the thing I liked about it, when, like, the first couple of years at Cloudera, when I really enjoyed traveling around, is that like you, you teach someone something, or you, you're giving a talk, and you learn like what works and what doesn't, and you get to improve the talk over time. You know what I mean? So like whenever I would give like when I recorded talks, generally speaking, it was not the first time I gave the talk. It was like the 10th time I'd given the talk and I'd always give it like at some company or some meetup where it wasn't recorded or whatever. And you get the chance to like workshop the talk and get it really good. And I don't really, and I don't really get that anymore. Like all of my talks are like now basically first time talks because I don't for the same reason. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to fix that this year. I'm going to try to like give the same talk a few times and get it like better basically as I go. But anyway, we'll see if I succeed. Well, you guys can have this be your first time at QCon doing that. Oh, no, no. So that was my first time at QCon AI. Cause I think it's the first time QCon AI has existed as a conference. Um, oh, cool. But, no, I mean, uh, will this be the first time you're giving that monitoring talk? This will be, so I, it was an interesting one. I, I gave, um, I did the talk originally as part of a, uh, like local meetup thing 
um, for like, I'm friends with the folks at launch darkly who do the feature flag startup. And they asked me to come give a talk uh, at one of their meetups. And I was like, I, I like, I like Edith a lot. She's their CEO. And so I was like, sure. I basically like, I don't know. I only give talks for like friends or like former colleagues and stuff these days. I don't do it for, for randos. Um, but uh, you came yeah. on this podcast though. Well, yeah, but I, I like you guys. I mean, it's like, you know, it's that kind of thing. Okay. Um, All right. So I um, said I said yes to the QCon folks. And I don't know them, but I looked on the website and I saw Josh yeah, there. So well, I said, I mean, okay, probably, probably worthwhile. No, I mean, Q, I mean, QCon's like a seriously like those those people are legit and they and they run a really good conference. Um, but anyway, um, I gave a ten minute talk there because it was just like it was like three talks and I was like and they were like you have ten minutes. I'm like great, ten minutes. I can do ten minutes. And it was really it was like a very very high level talk where I pretty much just like mentioned papers and tried to like give a quick summary of the lesson of the paper and be like go read the paper, right? So anyway, they recorded it and it got up on YouTube and it got on the Hacker News front page somehow. I don't actually know. I think they they of course they probably did it, right? Um, and so I was on the Hacker News front page for a while and then of course like because I hate myself, I went and read the comments. Um, and people are like, what is this guy talking about? He's giving these very like high level, vague descriptions of things. And I'm like, yeah, jackass. Cause I had 10 minutes. Like I can't go to fucking, you know, deep into this stuff in 10 minutes. It's not the way this works. Um, so anyway, for the, I'm, I'm looking forward to this talk at QCon because I get to actually go deep on the stuff that I had to like, kind of like blaze through in this talk. Um, so it's, it's kind of yeah. like, like, it's like attempt one and a half at this, I think. Yeah. Cool. Good. And when is that talk? Uh, I mean, who can remember? Um, let's, I don't know. When is QCon? April 16th. April 16th. Awesome. It will be April 16th. In I mean, April, that week. I don't know the exact date, but yeah. I just uh, I only agreed that I would do the talk like two days ago. So I Excellent. fresh in my head. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you when you come down. Thanks for thanks for schlepping all the way down here. I know. It's, uh, it's a real struggle. Long flight. Long flight. That's that's two hours. Okay. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, we're, we're over an hour now. So I only have one, uh, one question. Sure. Uh, left. Yeah. Um, and this is because you're like a you're like an old guy like me and yeah. uh, Andrew. Yeah. You're, I don't think you're as old as we are, but you're still pretty, pretty old. old. So, uh, w- yeah. yeah. Which is which is the best Rush album? The best Rush album? I am I am not yeah. old enough to answer that question. I'm sorry. You have, you have to try something else. All right. Yeah. yeah. This, yeah. This Andrew, I'm, what's I'm, the I'm, I'm Andrew? What's the best Rush album? I'm uh, probably twenty one twelve for concept and uh, uh, power windows. Uh, no, no, not not power windows. Uh, Spirit of radio and uh, moving pictures would be top three. No, the right answer is hemispheres. Hemispheres. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. For for that's yeah. Period for everything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. Um, no, so that uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway. No, 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 no worries. So, you did, so now you can feel young about yourself, I feel, right? I do feel young, and, and given like where I live and what I do for a living, that doesn't happen to me very often. So I really appreciate that. It means a lot to me. Thank right. you. Great, great. I think of the three of us as sort of the rush of data science. I just want to let you guys know. So I, I mean, again, I not really knowing anything about this band. I don't know why just that would go look. Well, I mean, I'm going gonna, gonna to go look now. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously I've like yeah. got it up on you know the Wikipedia page yeah. and stuff. But no, I'm sorry, I'm not. Do, do, do you want to do, do you want to ask us any questions before you go? Um, I guess since you guys already answered the the only question I was going to ask, which is what is your what is the best Rush album? I don't really have anything else to uh, to top that with. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> All right. Do you have anything? Do you have anything to like to sell? I don't. I mean, I, I do not have anything to sell. I, I you know I'm, I wrote a second edition of my book already, and I'm not writing a third. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't, I'm, I don't know, man. I live a, I live a fairly like blissful, charmed existence where I don't have to sell anything to anyone, ever. Um, 
I, I guess I took him. I, Twitter to promote. I mean, if you could, like, if you guys could maybe like come over to my house and convince my son to stay in his room until seven in the morning instead of like coming and waking me up at five thirty, that would yeah. be awesome. How old is he? He's, uh, he's three. He's three. Oh yeah. I- yeah. We're, we're both experienced with that age. Okay, so. yeah, that's that's, yeah. A, that's that's the easy age, man. That's, that's the that that's easy the age. easy. Are you guys fucking kidding me? That's the easy age, really? Oh, no, actually, it's the terrible threes. It is. It's the, it's no, the I, here's the thing: yeah. three-year-olds. Three when's the last time you saw a three-year-old cite precedent? Never, never, right? Never. That's true. Exactly. Never. Wait, wait until they start citing precedent. Yeah. That's when. That's when it gets fun. <laughs> we had the, we had the horrible experience today that we like we introduced him to Frozen, you know, and. Oh God! Tried, and it's like you know you're not thinking of this kind of stuff. And uh, he no. got obsessed about the part where the parents leave on the boat and don't come back. Yeah, great. He's like, awesome. where did the parents go? Where are the parents? Right. Where where did they go? And he's like, literally, like deeply. It reminds me, like, and I'm like having flashbacks to like being three and like Bambi's mom dying. Basically, it's like the thing. Like, yeah. oh, fuck. Parenting is hard. So, so anyway, yeah. It, so do you know this idea of like mansplaining? Yes, right? of course. Okay, so my my seven year old daughter is like the world's biggest mansplainer. Your seven year old like, daughter is the world's biggest her, mansplainer. Okay. Her her favorite word in the entire world is actually yes. Oh yes. yeah. I have, a, I have a, she loves she loves correcting people. Yeah, it's like her favorite thing. Sometimes, like I'm such a good dad. Sometimes I'll put mistakes in sentences on purpose because I know that she'll correct me and get joy out of, of it. Getting the correction. I remember I remember the first time my son well actually me that was. That was a blow. I think it was something he's he's always he's always obsessed with the thing, and right now it's space. Like space is his obsession, and I think I like got one of the dwarf planets wrong or something like that in the solar system. And he was uh, he's like, well, actually, Dad, Sedna is the, and I was like, oh God, I just wow, that's a blow. That's what is that what that feels? Like? Is that what that feels? Like? Is, that, is, is that what is that what it sounds like for other? Is that how other people feel when they? Is that? I had a moment of empathy, but then it quickly passed. So no worries. Right. Yeah. Stuff it down. Horrible. Exactly. I know. My, my my big thing is like uh, trying to convince her that that trait is not going to serve her well in life, and, and so like it doesn't bother me if she does it to me. Right. But, sure. Um, yeah. Externally, other people other people might not be as kindly disposed to her as Got I am. It. So. Got it. Um, exactly. Exactly. That is that that I agree. Definitely seems like the key. <laughs> Yeah, the key is to let, let your kids be jerks to you, so they can, they, can, they don't have to do it all out. Exactly, just take it all out on you, precisely. Anyway, this was really fun, guys. Well, Thank you awesome. so much for having. Yeah, me. you too. Okay, all right. Uh, and so, uh, tell everyone what your Twitter is. My Twitter is it's Josh underscore Wills because I was not fast enough to get Josh Wills, so I'm Josh underscore Wills. And my, my who has who has the no underscore version? That's a great question, actually. Let's find out. I don't I don't actually know. There's a few other Josh Willses. Um, there's the there's a drummer. Oh, it's the Josh Wills who lives in Denver. He's a he's a designer. Um, yeah, he, he has like a whole kind of company, and he's he, I, I have long since displaced him in the Google search results. Um, but there's the Josh Wills who's in Denver and the designer. There's the Josh Wills who used to be a professional bodyboarder and is now a photographer and is always kind of the Josh Wills I have aspired to be. And then my favorite Josh Wills is there's the Josh Wills who lives in LA and actually started working at Google uh, six weeks after I quit. And really confused nice. the hell out of like his team because it was like in a kind of team adjacent from from my team. They're like, "Welcome, Josh Wills, to Slack." Or sorry, to Google. There we go. It's, it's not a Freudian slip. Um, and uh, anyway, so yeah, those those are the those are the the main heavy hitter Josh Wills. Oh, and then the the drummer, the drummer for the punk rock band Story of the Year. Lots of I'm just saying, there's lots of great Josh Wills to choose from. Whatever whatever sort of domain sounds like it. Yeah, there's only the only other Andrew Musselman is a Canadian actor. Oh, okay. Yep. 
Is that? Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, good, luck, not, good luck with your bad. son staying in uh, out of your bedroom. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be some it's gonna be a prolonged effort, I think. So I appreciate that. Joel, I will see you in a couple months. Andrew, I don't know. Ever will we ever see each other again? I think so. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Okay. Good deal. All right, thanks, thanks for coming on. on. This was fun. I think this was a good episode. Thank you, guys. Joel here. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, I know it's been a long time since the last episode. Hopefully, it won't be as long before the next episode. Uh, I promise you, it won't be as long before the next episode. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this. And as always. If you want to check us out or share this with your friends, uh, you can go to adversariallearning.com, which is where we post all the episodes and you you can subscribe. Uh, We also have adversarial underscore L on Twitter, uh, which you can follow and we'll tweet out all new episodes there. And of course, I'm Joel Groose on Twitter. Andrew is AKM on Twitter. And make sure to go to iTunes or wherever and review this and blah, 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 and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, thanks for listening. And uh, I'll see you next time.